Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, truth that begins really with the gospel proper. Thank you for the privilege of getting back to it fundamentally so that we might, quote, reload it in our own souls even, so that we might revisit that confidence, that great hope that we had at salvation in earnestness and as we grow in your grace and knowledge. It's been so wonderful, Father, to understand these things in the light of grace and as it is motivated by your love. These are the things that our faith, our very faith is founded on, the author and perfecter of which hung on a cross 2,000 plus years ago to make even this evening a reality. What a pleasure, what a privilege. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message title, we are really just getting into the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. This is part nine. A lot of fundamentals on the table so far. Lots of things out in front of us. Very, very excited about what the Spirit's doing with all of us, uh, and I hope you are as well. On Sunday, we began and ended with a review of Galatians 5. I believe we started in 16 and ended somewhere around 28 or so, uh, maybe 24. But we uh, started and ended with the same review in Galatians 5, specifically the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, both of which are explicitly and abundantly described in Scripture. So let's review that now, but let's grab the whole context of the chapter this time to get us situated. Go to Galatians 5.1. Galatians 5.1, with that wonderful precept, that one that kickstarts the whole topic of discussion in the chapter for Paul, is one that the Spirit's been bringing back now from this pulpit for years. And really, it's been a go-to passage, if you would, for us, uh, remember our old ministry title name was Freedom in Christ Ministries, and it was really, much of it was based on this passage, truth be told. So Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, and that really just means to trust in the law for salvation. This was sort of the, um, the pinpoint for the Jews, the Judaizers that were trying to corrupt the Galatian church. They were saying you have to receive circumcision or else you're not saved, which is works, which is ridiculous. So Paul says, I say to you that if you receive circumcision, if you buy that lie, in other words, trust in such things for or part of the gospel for salvation, Christ will be of no benefit to you. In other words, you don't have him, if that's what you believe. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. The Bible says if you're out by even one factor, you've transgressed the whole thing which really, uh, I don't want to digress, but that's what the law was meant to do, to prove to mankind that we cannot be righteous under the law. So again, Paul says, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. If that's the route you want to take, then good luck. It's not going to happen for you. You have been uh, severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That, now, that can never happen to a believer, by the way. Falling from grace, that's an impossibility for a believer. So you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. In other words, he's putting the um, Judaizer doctrine up against the true gospel. And he's making this line in the sand. Hold your thumb there. We see the same thing with the, uh, the writer of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 6.4. Hebrews 6.4. Hold your thumb in Galatians 5. 
where it says, you have been severed from Christ. Those of you who want to be justified by the law, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Hebrews 6.4 speaks to the, basically the same activity, if you would, because remember, the folks at, uh, in Galatia had been given the gospel proper. Some accepted it, some stuck with the law. Hebrews 6.4 for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word, remember, tasted, not digested. It means uh, no complete conversion has been made. They haven't taken in the meal, if you would. Have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, none of these things imply salvation and then have fallen away, and then have fallen away. Only an unbeliever can fall away from grace. That's our hook back to Galatians 5.4. Only an unbeliever can fall away from grace. So then, and then have fallen away. So this is the individual who has tasted the gospel. Let's just put it in brief terms. Has tasted the gospel, has understood it, uh, has even been convicted by the Holy Spirit. Remember the Holy Spirit is there to minister even to unbelievers. Uh, and if they've tasted these things and fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. In other words, this is a person who has gotten it all. That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. They've seen it all. They've partook in the activities that revealed it all to them. And then they go, no thank you. I'll take my self-righteousness, essentially. That's the person that the writer is talking about. That's the person that Paul is talking about that has fallen from grace. So what this scripture says in Hebrews 6 is essentially that is once, think of it this way, once God's justice is satisfied, God would be unjust if he didn't reveal himself and the gospel to those who want it. He would be unjust sentencing people to the lake of fire. So he has to do this thing for every person. If he didn't, he would be an unjust God. But here's the deal. When he does it, you better listen. And if he does it in the fullness that he's describing there in Hebrews 6, and then you turn away from it, you have a very serious problem because God's justice is now satisfied. He says, that's the very best I've got, and you don't want it. I sent my son, I sent my spirit, I sent everything I've got for you to convict you. And you said, I hear it, I deny it, I don't want it. That person is and has a big problem, and that's what it means to fall away from grace. You think about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Those are the individuals that he says, essentially in Romans 1, okay, you don't want it? Then here's, what, here's your life. Shoo, this downward spiral into what we would call apostasy. Uh, and that person cannot be restored to repentance. I don't want to get into anything more than that, but you get the point. Okay, That's what it means to fall from grace. The person has tasted the gospel truth and then they have turned away from it. They have condemned themselves to the lake of fire. Okay, go back to Galatians 5.4, where Paul is essentially saying the same thing to these individuals. Uh, Galatians 5.4, You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, he gets back to believers, for we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And again, I just emphasize, read your own Bibles, figure out what the context is. I've given you this context uh, already this evening in, in the past, that the Judaizers were trying to trip up the church, that they had the gospel. Uh, it was being propagated, but they were hovering around like wolves, sometimes in sheep, sheep's clothing, and trying to get people to be saved by works, uh, such as circumcision. So, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. 
you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Remember, he's talking about you. When he talks about you, he's talking about the whole church. When he talks about it's like the churches in uh, Revelation. He's not talking about specific individuals. He's talking about the whole church. The whole church was doing well, and now there's been a defection. Now there's been people that would have been, quote-unquote, or on the pathway to conversion, not being converted. They're listening to the Judaizers. The Judaizers are taking them away. Does that make sense? So he's talking about the whole church. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Again, this is also a calling on our lives as individuals, of course. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. He was being sarcastic there. He did not preach circumcision, but the Judaizers were claiming he did and muddying his message. But if I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And in my own personal studies, I'm seeing the um, tremendous connection between walking and filling uh, of the Spirit. They're very close, if not almost the same thing in Scripture. I don't want to say anything too dogmatic because they are different statements. But they're very, very close uh, doctrines, if you would. But I say, walk by the Spirit, be filled, in other words, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And now we get to the point that we began with this evening, the explicit fruit of the flesh versus fruit of the Spirit. What are the, what's the fruit of the flesh look like? Galatians 5.19 Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, uh, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissent, sounds like our country, doesn't it? <laughs> Dissensions, factions, envying, uh, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And practice, again, is in the uh, habitual sense, the lifestyle. Individuals who have no problem living in that kind of sin, what the Word says is they're not saved. A person whose lifestyle is characterized, dominated by the sovereignty of sin, is not a saved individual. That's what the Bible says. Therefore, that person cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't say that. That's the word of God. But, on the flip side, but, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that's where we have that lead-in into that good work in Romans 6, being or died to sin, being dead to sin, is what we've been studying the last few lessons in Romans 6. On Galatians 5.24, I gave you William MacDonald's point, which is worth repeating. When we repented there was a sense in which we nailed the old, evil, corrupt nature to the cross with all its affections and lusts. Verse 25. If or since is a fair translation as well. If or since, in the sense, since we live by the Spirit as believers, 
let us also walk by the Spirit. One is a positional reality, since we live by the Spirit. That's a positional reality. One is a progressive or experiential reality. Some might say positional sanctification versus experiential sanctification. That's what you have in view. Since or if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, be filled, etc. Verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And again, that has uh, a lot to do with the context, and that's where it helps to understand the context. Okay? Um, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The key to our studies as of late has been on that phrase, died to sin, up here on the board, because we are in Christ, Romans 6, 11, 8, 1, and He died in our place, Romans 5, 6 to 8, we are counted dead with Him, we are baptized into His death, Romans 6, 3, our old self crucified with Him, therefore we are no longer slaves of sin, uh, sin is not our master anymore, Romans 6, 6 to 7. We did all that good work, and that good work begins at the beginning of that chapter in Romans 6, verse 2. He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And it's a rhetorical question. It's um, ridiculous to think we would do that thing, but the flesh is ridiculous. And therefore, we are influenced negatively by that ridiculous thing, that unrighteous, self-centered, self-righteous thing called the flesh. Always trying to assert its will, right? It's ridiculous. Always, And then as I wrote in my blog recently, it sees a law and it says, I don't want to do it just because that law is there now. How about that? Tell me to do something. I really won't do it now. That's the flesh. So you have to think that way, because you all show up to class even with flesh. And what's the word? The Spirit's like, command, 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 right? And he's got the bald guy all fired up. Command, I don't like him right now. He's getting all fired. Boom, boom, the Spirit's getting all riled up, and the flesh is like, right? It's right there on the edge, right? Or maybe you can hold on for about another half an hour after class, but then it takes that one thing, someone cuts you off at the light, and it's like, explosion! Right? And the flesh is like, Aah! you know. That's how it happens with me, anyways. I make those Hulk noises, too. I tear my shirt. It gets ugly. Seriously. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? To amplify this practically, the Spirit also gave us this. The old self is under the sovereignty of sin, but it is crucified with Christ at salvation. Something that is dead to us cannot have any real power over us as master or Lord. As believers, we serve a living master or Lord. And also he gave us this. Dead to sin, this means sin is no longer your sovereign, no longer Lord over you. A gospel that allows for a person to remain alive to sin is a false gospel. And I hope you appreciate what the Spirit and how the Spirit has been doing. The Spirit has backed us in to the gospel in many ways. He's been working on the fringes. I think of it as like onions, right? It's concentric circles. He's been getting closer and closer and closer. He's had to snip certain doctrines that were misplaced or even false. He had to snip those ties so that the gospel would be loosened enough so that we could do this good work. That's what he's been doing. So he's had to back us into this thing. You see, get rid of the protocols, get rid of the junk, get rid of the garbage, get rid of dysfunction junction, get rid of all those things that had the gospel under siege, had it trapped, immovable, in the wrong place. So I've, I've appreciated the way he's done it. I think it's obviously the only way he could have done it with this crowd. The only way he could have done it with a so-called educated crowd was to back into it the way that he's done over the past few years. And that's been the glorious truth of all this good work. Uh, it certainly has been necessary from my perspective. 
so that we could get to this idea of the gospel proper, a gospel that allows for a person to remain alive to sin is a false gospel. And you don't have to look very far in Christendom, folks, to see a lot of people out there that are literally living in sin. Pick, pick your poison of the list in Galatians 5. One, two, three, four, five or more of them. These people are living in that situation, full-blown without any problems whatsoever. They just have a little religious protocol or they just have this thing. They say, I, I believe the, you know, there's, there's the facts about Jesus Christ. I'm going to heaven. Whatever. I don't care if I'm not a winner believer. I don't care if I get any crowns. I don't care if I'm, you know, whatever. I'm going. Are you sure, my friend? Because that attitude is not the attitude of a true believer. A true believer's heart has been changed. Actually has been changed. And to say that you could still live in the sovereignty of sin as a changed individual is to say the word of God is lying. That's the big problem. But we had to back into it. So a gospel that allows for a person to remain alive to sin is a false gospel, even if it has the facts about Jesus correct. If you're truly saved, you'll hate sin. And just to qualify that a little bit, that's Matthew 6.24, just to qualify that a little bit more, the more you mature in faith, the more you will hate sin. The more you mature, the more you will despise the presence of sin in your own life. So we also looked at Luke 14 uh, to catch. And why? let me just expand on that. Why might that be? Think about the example in the blog. If you get more commands, the more riled up your flesh is, fair? Okay. So if you're the new creature and you're just watching your flesh take offense at every new lesson and every new command that is now seated in your soul as, as truth, then you hate it. It's like, cut it out. This is ridiculous. Every time I go to class, I get something new. I get something fresh. I get, you know, washed with the word. I feel, and then on the other side of the fence, my flesh is that much more ticked off against some new commandments that have now become reality to me. Does that make sense? So as you grow up, of course, there's a greater animosity because you have the new creature and this thing that keeps getting more and more inflamed. On this side, you're more edified and sanctified, and this side, it's more inflamed. And by the end of your life, it's like, you know, two wild beasts. And you see it, and you say, my goodness, like Paul says, who will free me from this body of what? Death, because that's where sin reigns, in death. And that's where flesh wants to take you back to the sovereignty of death, which is the sovereignty of sin. Amen? Yeah, so it makes a lot of sense that the more you grow up, the more inflamed and the more you hate sin and what it represents in the flesh and all of that. So we looked at Luke 14 to catch the Lord's thoughts on discipleship even. <clears throat> he really didn't hold any punches. I love it. So edified by it. I don't know about you, but so wonderfully edified by my Lord's words and His uh, refusal to kowtow, I guess that's the right word, to those who somehow through their human rationalism demand a softer gospel, demand that even other religions can uh, claim God as their own. The problem is other religions, if it's not Christianity, if it's not faith alone and Christ alone, etc., etc., it's not the same God. Here's our God. There's the other gods. But I digress. Discipleship up here on the board. Jesus demanded that to become a disciple, one must abandon their ties to the self-life. They must be, excuse me, willing to surrender unconditionally to the Lord, the same requirement exists today. So this is where we had to concentrate, and I'm asking you to concentrate again this evening. From Sunday, we got to that pivotal point of reconciliation, and specifically, whose work it really is. There's a lot of people out there that would 
even Paul expressed it in Romans 9, um, would love to somehow do a good work on behalf of loved ones so that they too might be saved. If it means I sacrifice myself even, like Paul said, um, I'll do it. I love these people. I want them to be saved. But the Word of God is very clear on this subject that it is God's work, not another human being's, not anyone. It's between God and each individual. So, we think about it this way. Relative to the Great Commission we were given by Jesus Christ Himself, He said, go make disciples. Where in Scripture does it ever say that we, as evangelists, ought to be conciliatory? In other words, let's meet halfway. Okay, you're over there and I'm over here with the gospel proper. Well, let's meet halfway. Where does it say that? It doesn't. If we water down the gospel, we are injecting human works into God's work of reconciliation. Romans 5, 11, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. I was just having a conversation with someone this morning about how folks with control freak issues are the same folks that fall prey to this error. They think that they can somehow control God's gospel even. That somehow they can bridge the gap. Almost like, you know, there's like the person came this far and then here's the gospel and they need to walk across. And the other person comes in and goes, walk on my hands and get over there. You know, this kind of a thing. I'll hold up a, somehow a piece of the, the bargain with God on your behalf because you're whatever. Well, that person that's trying to hold up a piece of the bargain is an idiot. They're trying to even control God. And that's really a problem that all of you need to get out of your souls if that's the case. And that's how false gospels actually come to fruition. It's because people meddle with the plain facts, the plain truth of the gospel. The gospel is stark. Jesus didn't apologize for it. Jesus didn't say, well, if Uncle Jimmy wants to help you out, okay, well, he can jump in. You know, Jimmy's such a wonderful guy. I'll take some of his little personal righteousness and sign it to Is everybody following that? Yeah. As the spirits pointed out in the past, folks with control issues are those who haven't stripped themselves of the fleshly desire to master Teshuka those around them. Let's look at some scripture on this point. Colossians 3.5. Go there. Colossians 3.5. So these people with control issues, they haven't stripped themselves of the fleshly desire to master even those around them. And that's a fleshy issue, as we'll see in Colossians 3 here. 3.5. Therefore... Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Those are the unbelievers, of course. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. That's your, if assuming you're saved, that's your former manner of life, so to speak, the old self with all its trappings etc in them you also once walked when you were living in them but now you also put them all aside anger wrath malice slander and abusive speech from your mouth that's apotitami up here on the board put them all aside it means to put off to lay aside in context refers to the putting aside the fruit of the flesh Put those things aside. That's the command. And because it's a command, anytime we see a command in the Bible, what does that imply? It implies volition. Okay? So that's a command. Put it off. Put it off. Lay aside. In context, refers to the putting aside the fruit of the flesh in conjunction with receiving unto oneself the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, you can't have both. Again, Colossians 8. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your, from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self 
with its evil practices. Laid aside is from Apek Duomai up here on the board. And this is the stripping thing, where you laid aside the old self means to strip off from oneself. In context, refers to the taking off of the flesh. You can almost think about, you know, uh, taking it off like a, like a garment. Take that thing off. It's nasty. And that's what Paul's really saying to the Colossians. Take that thing off. It stinks to the high heavens, right? Take it off. Take that flesh off. And that's the, that's the figurative uh, imagery there. So it means to strip off from oneself. In context, refers to the taking off the flesh as in a clothing analogy. In conjunction with, guess what? Put on Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. That's part of our sanctification process. We take off the old self, like clothing, like garments, and we put on Christ. That's our new garment, so to speak. Verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on, that's in duo, the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And up here on the board is in duo. That's what put on means. It means to clothe or be clothed with, to be dressed with the new self in context here. In other words, make that your reality. I remember Scott Grande taught that, uh, you know, uh, experience your position, experiencing your position, understanding what your position is, but also understanding what your experience is and how they're different and how you have to be experientially or progressively sanctified as well. But remember, your direction is set. The desire is there. That's the litmus test that he's been harping on for eight lessons now. If you don't have the direction, you don't have the desire, you have no problem whatsoever living and abiding in sin as a lifestyle, as a way of life. You have no desire to be with Christ. You just want heaven. You just want the free ticket to uh, eternal life. If that's you, then you're not saved. However, if you are saved, you're going to be riddled with sin because of the old flesh, the old sin nature, as we like to call it out. And so the command is to take it off, like clothing, to take it off and put on Christ. And that's part of our sanctification process. So that's what enduo means. It means to put on, put on the new self here in context. Paul says in Romans 13, 14, up here on the board, but put on in duo, same Greek word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So those are overarching commands relative to uh, sanctification experientially. Again, the point for this trip to Colossians 3 was relative to this, you know, this vernacular we call control freaks, Folks with control issues are those who haven't yet stripped, and that's, I'm borrowing Apek Duomai from Colossians 3.9, laid aside. They haven't laid aside, or they struggle with laying aside uh, the old self. They haven't yet stripped themselves of the fleshly desire to master or to shuka those around them. They are overcome by this fleshly desire to do even works, and this is where it gets goofy, because in this case, what the Spirit's working out relative to reconciliation is they actually want to use their own human good works for someone else's benefit. But it's still, guess what? Human good works. It's still ridiculousness. It's still you trying to do God's work, which you can never do. So we don't have the right either, uh, for even when it's for someone else's quote-unquote benefit, we cannot do that thing, and the only practical thing we can do, really, is water down the gospel. If Uncle Jimmy's unwilling to come to the truth, the only thing we can really do, practically speaking, and we can pray and do these kinds of things, but practically speaking, for them, the good work that people fall into is they try to somehow make it happen. Right? They try to make a love connection, and it doesn't work. Right? It's like a bad blind date or something. I don't know. But these are control freaks, and that's what people do in the flesh. So as a side note, have you ever realized how similar Romans and Colossians are as books? Take a look at it. It's pretty fun. Romans and Colossians, a lot of the same theology. If you read Colossians, read Romans. Or if you read Romans, read Colossians. And they'll edify, they'll build 
the context is different, you know. Um, just a side note. It's like Daniel and Revelation or John 1 and 1 John 1. They have a relationship. It's fun. All right, let's get back to our primary point of concentration from Sunday, namely reconciliation. Again, the point we're developing here, where in Scripture does it ever say that we as evangelists ought to be conciliatory? It doesn't. If we water the gospel down, we are injecting human works into God's work of reconciliation. Here are those verses, Romans 5.11, 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19, in the Amplified Romans 5.11, not only that, but we also rejoice in God, rejoicing in His love and perfection through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, emphasis on received, and enjoy our reconciliation with God. So reconciliation is, guess what? You ready for this? It's a gift, just like everything else. It's God's good work. No matter how much we want to see Uncle Jimmy saved, poor Uncle Jimmy, hope the guy's saved, right? Um, no matter how much we want to see Uncle Jimmy saved, we cannot, in human good, as much as we want, do any part of it. We couldn't do it with ourselves. We certainly can't do it with anyone else. Reconciliation is a gift that we need to remember that and get the heck out of the way and get the gospel right instead of trying to water it down so we can all play games and pretend people are saved and they're not even possibly that's supposed to be um, 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, by the way. 2 Corinthians 5.18. Uh, but all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, making us acceptable to him, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, so that by our example we might bring others to him. That is, again, same thing, 2 Corinthians, not first. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, but canceling them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, that is, restoration to favor with God. The point is, again, that reconciliation is not our good work. It's God's good work. Our job, then, we are, what, relegated to, let's just get it right. Let's just be as open and honest. And if it means being confrontational at Thanksgiving dinner, it might have to be that way. But you better not sit there at Thanksgiving dinner and go, you might be right with your crappy, watered-down religion that has human works. You cannot do that thing. You're better off just keeping your mouth shut. But do not agree. Do not agree. I say flip the table over, throw the turkey on the wall, <laughs> take the dressing and just... Just kidding. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that with the dressing, because dressing's good, right? <laughs> Sometimes you feel like it, though, right? I don't know. There's an increasing, uh, I don't want to call it animosity, maybe enmity, to be more biblically accurate, bubbling up in my own personal, my own soul, my own existence, that I'm really split down the middle that in one sense I'm heartbroken. I'm almost crying right now thinking about people that won't accept the gospel. But in the other sense, I'm angry as heck that the same people are saying Jesus was a farce. It's like, what? what? Wait a minute. So I have this dichotomy going on. I don't know if you're quite as confused as I am, but I don't mean confused, but you know what I mean. What seems to be the impetus for all of this work on the gospel is that just like in every age past, the gospel has been perverted. And what most seem to find acceptable isn't actually the case at all. Go to Isaiah 5.20. Isaiah 5.20. Isaiah 5.20. This is, this is how important this is, folks, that we get the gospel right. Isaiah 
you might say, you know, just in a practical sense, oh, well, if I don't get it right, then, you know, God, because of his perfect integrity, says that he, he will get everybody who needs the gospel, he will get it. So eventually, even if I don't do my job, that person will go to heaven, right? What a selfish thing to say. What a selfish thing to say. What a myopic, egocentric thing to say. Maybe your motivation should be, but hey, maybe if they heard it from me, you know, 20 years before they heard it from Aunt Sue, they could enjoy 20 years of sanctification. They could enjoy 20 years of delivering the gospel themselves. They could enjoy 20 years of actually having hope and confidence and assurance of eternal life. Oh, you mean I'm supposed to think about others like that? Yeah, jackass, you're supposed to think about others like that. It ain't all about you, or is it? Anyways, Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe! And I looked up the, uh, the Hebrew on that and had an exclamation point next to it. It's not just woe, it's woe with an exclamation point. Like, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. For some of you, the issue may seem like splitting hairs, all of this even, or maybe even obvious. Remember that there are always others in your congregation that come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different theologies even, different religions even. And if it's not really a strong, strong issue with you, I would say two things. You may be just starting out and it never has been an issue because something unholy hasn't been planted. Or you're missing something still. But either case, I would say that to you. So some may, it may seem like I'm splitting hairs, but I'm not. But to me, the gospel truth simply cannot be, quote, close enough or somehow, quote, good enough for most people. I don't even like those relative terms. The gospel is absolute. It's true or it's not. It's right or it's not. And I don't want to have a gospel that's good enough in my soul, or that's close enough in my soul. I don't want that. I certainly don't want to present that on behalf as a representative, as an ambassador from our citizenship all the way onto earth that misrepresents the gospel truth. I don't want to be that person. It's not our commission. That line of logic in of itself is garbage thinking even. That's, again, once again, flesh. You know, the flesh just says, as long as I'm good enough, right? Well, what's good enough? As long as I have the gospel good enough. As long as I'm close enough. That's the flesh speaking. Because the new self says, get it right. Absolute. Getting the gospel right. The fundamental issue is that if you get the gospel wrong, you will end up with a portfolio of doctrines that are skewed somehow. And that's why I took the lessons, I mean somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,300-plus lessons off of the website. I'm going to go through them. But chances are they're probably not going to get reposted. 1,300 hours of lessons, about 28,000 pages of notes. Now you know why it's going to take me a little while. This is why. Because a lot of the, a lot of the things that were woven into the fabric of those lessons had come all the way back to the gospel. And with the new light on the gospel, some of those lessons are suspect in my situation. Let's put it that way. So that's how important the gospel is to me, to get it right. I just want to get it right. And I want you to have that same attitude it's not about establishing a, some legacy. It's about establishing truth. We already have legacy. You know where it is? Right here. This is it. This is as good as it gets. It's not Ed Collins Incorporated. It's not Pastor Ed with a little C next to it. Or the R with the rights reserved, the registered trademark. Come on, this is ridiculous. I was talking to uh, Pastor Joe Chagru the other day, and he and I were laughing about the same thing. He's the same as I. He's like, I don't want. He said, I want to keep this thing simple. This is supposed to be, you know, this is God's word. Why in the heck? I said, I'm with you. 
these people get all weird and they're like, oh, this is my ministry. They copyright everything and they, they, these are the same people that sell books, you know, this kind of thing and make millions of dollars off the Word of God. This isn't about our legacy. The legacy's already set. This is about us being in the path. This is about us getting it right. And if it means you didn't, quote-unquote, have it perfect or just right or even better six years after you open up your church doors, so be it. So be it. It's about getting it right. Amen? Amen. The fundamental issue is that if you get the gospel wrong, you will end up with a portfolio of doctrines that are skewed somehow. I attempted to help explain this point with a football passing analogy. It's a little clunky, but bear with me. If I go through all this work, you're going to see it at least twice. <laughs> the point is that, look, if you throw a short pass, if you throw, if you throw a short pass, you, you know, you're going to, you can be off a little bit. But as you go downfield, the problem is only the gospel hits its target. Those ones that were a little off with those close passes, by the time they get downfield, there's no touchdown. You threw them an egg and they ran down the field with a watermelon or an egg thinking they had something right. Well, that's the same idea with the gospel. If you give someone the gospel, a false gospel, by the time they run downfield, guess what? They don't get into heaven. And even the ones who think they're getting into heaven, which I believe is probably a lot greater than we like to think, they're going to hear, I never knew you. What, is there a more horrible thing to show up and Christ says, no, sorry. It's horrible. It's a horrible fate for, I assume, many people. And so he's doing this good work. He's telling even us, like Paul said, throughout his epistles, that's one thing I've seen. He had no problem, ever. In, we just saw it in Galatians 5. He had no problem. We've seen it in 2 Corinthians 13. He had no problem challenging. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 6, 4-6, same thing. No problem challenging even the congregations themselves. Saying, you better make sure you're saved. Well, how do I know? Right here. How do I know I'm saved? Check your fruit. You better check your fruit, like, right now. If, you, if you're okay with living in sin, if you're okay with this lifestyle that has nothing to do with Christ, you might have a problem. And that's what he's been saying. You might be downfield already, thinking you're halfway to the end zone. I'm going to heaven, woo! And come to find out, you didn't even have the gospel right. So the big question for many is, well, how do I know if I'm saved or not? Up here on the board, <clears throat> since salvation is a supernatural reality, we must look for supernaturally generated fruit. That's all we know. Do you want, I mean, seriously, ask yourself right now, and I'm not saying you're having a bad day and you just don't feel like being here, but in general, why do you, why do you come to church? In general. So that your mom and pop are impressed because they come to the same church? Or because you literally thirst for truth? Do you want truth from the Word of God? Or do you think that going to church is somehow going to appease God or God's going to be somehow pleased because you show up and in that religiosity you're good enough to make it to heaven? Well, that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you have to look at your motivation. Hasn't that been on the docket for years now? Even as we've sort of snipped all those little ties from religion back, from religious backgrounds, hasn't he always used the object of motivation? Okay, great. So you, your fruit looks like the person next to you, but what's your motivation? And then I'd see everybody squirming, and, and then some people would squirm so much, they just bolt. They're not here anymore because it was too much, too convicting. You know, all those kinds of little things have been going on. But this is the reality, folks. I didn't set it out. God did. He said, you need to look for the fruit that's captured and recorded and inspired in the Word of God. And if you don't like it, if you think John's too harsh or, or Jesus was too unforgiving or harsh or, you know, whatever, too bad. That's just flat out too bad. 
that's the Bible. And if you don't like it, you have a problem with God. Not, certainly not me. So since salvation is a supernatural reality, we must look for supernaturally generated fruit. There are a multitude of ways to realize that you are saved, including but not limited to things like obedience, assurance, filling of the Spirit, spiritual appraisal of truth, freedom, love, all the fruit of the Spirit that we noted, and especially even the thirst for the Word of God. I mean, who likes, I mean, does anybody really want to go, all right, so do it, don't do this, but pretend that you started tonight, said, you know what, I'm not going to drink water, I'm not going to drink any fluid for three days. Now, what's your physical body going to be saying to you? Hey, let's go. We're about ready to croak here. Well, the word of God, Jesus Christ said, he who comes to me shall never thirst. Remember the well? Shall never thirst. He, that person won't hunger. Well, if you, don't, if you can go <laughs> for eons without the word of God and you don't, you're not thirsty or hungry, you might have a problem. That's the word of God. You might have a problem. So that's how you know. After Jesus, the Apostle John is arguably the most staunch presenter of what we might call faith fruit, or fruit that's from true faith. So we have this idea of you shall know them by their fruit. The Apostle John uses very straightforward language to describe the polar differences between a person who has been given faith and the one who hasn't. Go to 1 John 3.10. We'll just do this review quickly. We went through um, most of 1 John 3 last time. So we'll just hit the highlight reel. First John 3.10. So John doesn't make any... I mean, I love it, actually. I've learned to truly love it. Even part of my own soul. And I, I mean, I'm just burying it all out here now. But, you know, when I used to read John, I'd be like, man, that guy's kind of like a... Phew. You know, like, is this real? Is he really? Is it really that, like, in your face? And it is. He was an apostle. You know, he wrote... Part of the Bible, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And if he wrote it, that means we all need to listen. And it doesn't matter if we're, quote-unquote, offended or put off or irritated even by how stark he is. It doesn't matter. 1 John 3.10, what matters is that we get the truth. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are what? Obvious. Anyone who does not practice, again, the lifestyle... Practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. That's the other one. I think I put that in there in the list. That love, if you don't have any love for the brethren, minimally, you might have a problem as well. Because God is love, and he indwells you. Now, you might say in agreement with unbelievers even, that righteousness, quote-unquote, means, you know, being a good person. That's what most of the world likes to posture. Be a good person. I'm going to heaven because I'm good enough. I'm a good person. As long as at the end of the day I did more good than bad, then I'm going to heaven. And anybody who says otherwise, anyone who says the only way to Jesus is through Jesus Christ is, is, is soft in the head. Because my human rationale says that's impossible, blah, blah. But that's what most people believe. I have to be good enough somehow. So... You might say, in agreement with unbelievers even, that righteousness means being a good person, but you couldn't be further from the truth. Technically, by societal standards, the Pharisees were good people, right? Yeah, they were the best, supposedly. Yet they were very much unrighteous before God. The truth is that the only way a person will ever become righteous is if it is imputed to them by the grace of God. It's a gift. It truly is a gift. But you have to give up the old self and want the new. And as we talked about last night at the Bible, at the Bible study, is that God himself calls you. By today's standards, being a good person, quote-unquote, 
means being tolerant of every whim of the flesh. Isn't that fair? Let's face it. Who's the, all right, who's the most intolerant person in the room when you walk in with the gospel proper? Who's tagged as the intolerant one in the room? You are. Because you say, I'm sorry. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Period. You don't like it? Too bad. But Jesus was God. He said it. That's the truth. But, but there's no buts. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. If you go through Jesus Christ, He will impute perfect righteousness to you on your account. It's perfect. You don't have to be good enough anymore. You don't have to be good enough anymore. Because God's good enough. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And you got His perfect righteousness imputed to you for free. So stop trying to work your way to heaven. So, but <laughs> the funny thing is, if you say that like that, you're the one who's being intolerant. So today's standards, being a good person means being tolerant of every whim of the flesh. Even being tolerant of ridiculous stickers, bumper stickers like this one. Oh! Ooh. I always get almost my stomach turns when I'm stuck behind someone like that. I feel like rear-ending them. That's why I had to get rid of my F-350 diesel because I was too tempted. I would have run up the back of everyone over them. And as I went by, I said, nice sticker. I didn't. I didn't think like that. I'm not that vile. Not always. Anyways, I did some research, even though it made me sick to my stomach. This is Islam. There's Judaism. There's Christianity. This is a Wiccan symbol. I always thought that was the peace symbol, personally. But I guess it's a Wiccan pagan symbol of sorts. This is supposed to be science and evolution. This is another Wiccan one. And then this is the Chinese yin-yang. Whatever that means. Co-exist. And these are the same people that want you to believe that there's only one God. And that all these people are going to be in heaven with us. Because as one buffoon of a so-called Christian minister with a collar said in a debate recently that I unfortunately have seared into my memory, He said, I think, when posed, and this was, um, what's that guy's name? Uh, the guy that always wears the suspenders, the old guy. He's Jewish. He does the interviews. How? Hey, thanks for your help. <laughs> thanks a bunch. It's all right. I'll just tighten the noose myself. You know what I'm talking about. That old guy. Oh, what's his? Larry King. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. You move up. Because that's what we do at this church. It's all about creature credit. Pretty soon she'll be right here. This is a Pat. You're so awesome, Pat. What's the answer? That would be... <laughs> Habakkuk. Anyways, what was I saying? Oh, so this idiot with the collar on uh, Larry King Live, who had a panel of like three Christians, two of them were idiots, one was accurate, a Jewish rabbi, an atheist, and possibly someone else. So Larry King asked this guy, this so-called Christian pastor, hey, how do you get to heaven? I believe Jesus Christ. And Larry says, well, what are you saying then? Everybody else is wrong? I don't believe. I think that my God is big enough. That's what I believe. But my God, I believe, is big enough so that the Muslim and the Hindu and all these other religions can go to heaven too. The Christian, the guy with the Christian under his name, like, says, you know, Christian pastor or whatever. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then the one Christian that stood up for absolute truth says, no, the only way is Jesus. They all like, like on him. Right, and then they all then in floods all the human rationalism. Oh, how uh, how's everybody here about Jesus? You know this garbage. Bad question after bad question, 
after bad question. You got the Jewish rabbi saying, oh, it's relative. You can be good enough. You got the atheists are saying, you guys are idiots, all of you, right? It all came from a big bang or something like that, right? Yeah, I think the explosion was in your head, bud. Maybe it was your ego that finally blew up. Anyways, um, this is the garbage that, you know, coexists as much as that is palpable or tolerable or even embraced by the flesh is literally disgusting. You might as well, and I don't mean to be gross, but you might as well strap a turd to your bumper. And that would be better than that. It would be less offensive. That's not gross. I'm thinking, what else am I going to say? What's grosser? Right? Some college kids out, you know, old beat up Chevette with the the throw up out the side of the window because his buddy got sick. No, everybody never seen that car either? Yeah. Okay. You guys are all so pure. To the pure, all things are pure. This is gross. This is worse than feces. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying that, honestly, with a straight face. It's gross. And we should never tolerate that, no part of it, no watering down the gospel proper so that something like that can coexist in what we would properly call Christianity. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.